Hello and welcome to Apocalypse Bunker Discs. Well, let's face it, in the age of melting ice sheets, the 21st century castaway is far more likely to find themselves marooned down in an apocalypse bunker than on an idyllic island. Each instalment, I invite a new lockaway to make a selection of music they would download with their severe Wi-Fi rationing. Additionally, a film, ebook, and artwork to see them through the isolated days. I, Oliver Turtle, am working as a cultural liaison for the Apocalypse Council. My lockaway for this instalment is Dominic Simpson, or as he is sometimes known, Dream Maps. Yeah, I like the idea of being mysterious. Dominic operates across political and musical spheres, deeply involved with his native Hackney, where he has chronicled matters at the heart of the capital, while also serving as a node within the left-field music scene. A multi-instrumentalist, Dominic wields guitar, piano and clarinet on stage, battling with Theresa May speeches cut up into hypnotic mantras. And a cowbell, maybe? Yes, um, well that's... Uh, anyone can play the cowbell. Or maybe not, perhaps it's uh, not the way you play, I'm sure. I find Dominic in his lair. Dark glasses, red satin shirt, reflective among banks of modular synths, lava lamps, and a poster of a UFO that declares, I want to believe. Thank you for having me. C'est un vrai plaisir d'être ici. De rien. De rien, absolument. Yes. So for your first track, you, you surprised me because... I know you as being an, a sort of electronic aficionado, or maybe more into... Weirdo synth music. Yeah, that's one way of putting it, whereas you've gone in quite a different direction. <laughs> well, you know, since when I was a kid, this is uh, one of my favourite songs. So the, the track is uh, Steel Ice Band, All Around My Hat. Pretty much one of my favourite guitar records that I heard when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, my mum's originally from the south of France, and we used to go on these long holidays when I was a kid to the south of France, uh, Nîmes, where she's from. I don't know if these were the days before big motorways in France, because it always felt like the car journey down from London to Nîmes always felt like it just took a lifetime. Um, so my dad would play uh, songs in the car. He used to play Slay Ride by Prokofiev, which I love. Uh, he used to play lots of Jean-Michel Jarre. Um, Oxygen, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always used to play this song as well, All Around My Hat by Steel Ice Band. Uh, and I still uh, really love it. I think I chose this also because I've got into British folk rock in a big way in the last 15 years after thinking that it was beyond the pale when I was a teenager. Steel Ice Band, especially a bit kind of like your embarrassing old uncle at the family wedding who dances really badly when the DJ plays Barry White. Uh, but if you listen to a lot of British folk rock, including Steel Ice Band, um, it's actually pretty radical in some ways. Steel Ice Band were the first generation. Of course, you had like Fairport Convention, Sandy Denny, Vashti Bunyan, mm-hmm. uh, Nick Drake, and especially Pentangle, who successfully merged British folk from centuries past with electric rock and roll music, which we take for granted now, but actually it was quite a revolutionary idea, I guess, in the 60s and 70s. And I have a book called Electric Eden, which covers all this stuff, and it was a, such a fertile period. Folk music's called folk because it's the music of the common folk, not the, the aristocracy. The establishment felt threatened by a lot of folk music. And across the pond in America, I guess you could say the same about Woody Guthrie, you know, this land 
is your land and the whole thing where he'd go from state to state galvanizing people and it had some pretty radical anti-establishment sentiments at the time which we we often kind of forget now you know we always think of the hey nonny no and the morris dancing which is actually mm. pretty revolutionary music in its own way all around my hat i will going down to pagan rituals in uh, Nîmes. Oh, in of, course, of course, yeah. I mean, there's, yes. a, there's a big amphitheater there where, the, you know, massive uh, Roman orgies, you know. Obviously, I was a big part of that, you know. I, I thought Babbitt was where this was leading. Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah. The song itself, apparently it's a 19th century, it's about a fruit vendor whose fiancé has been caught stealing and she's sent to Australia for seven years right. as sort of a, a punishment. That's interesting, I didn't and, know. And uh, apparently he all around my hat he wears these uh, willow sprigs which I suppose you know the weeping tree the, weeping willow. Tree. the album is based on below the salt strong medieval folk meaning the same as um, Legion Leaf the, the album of the Fairport Convention title so I guess in the last 15 years I've, I've got into a lot of British folk music which I never did before mm. The, the music of the folk of Britain. Folk music can be pretty fascinating. I mean, even if you can get behind the terrible haircuts and moustaches and, like, fiddle solos, but folk rock is actually pretty genuinely exciting, and the way it's been pulled in this new, weird Britain direction is really interesting. I mean, obviously, folk is soundtracking things like The Wicker Man as well, which kind of hark back to pagan festivals, which really did use folk music. So folk music now has this slightly creepy, slightly edge, sort of reappropriate between like broadcast and the ghost box label and the whole hauntology movement. British folk rock music has been incorporated as part of that, being pushed in this whole new direction. Songs, songs, have a bloom, have a bloom In the room, in the room, in the afternoon All day round goes 
is the light and dark It makes one person ready for Well, well, your next choice is really at the other end of the spectrum. It, it is, yeah. looking at the, the zeitgeist <laughs> at the time. That's right. So I chose this next one, uh, Close to the Edit by The Art of Noise. First of all, this was on the first album that I ever actually went out and bought from a record shop. Before this. I had music before then, because my brother gave me tapes of Art of Noise. It was on Holloway Road, interestingly enough. So I was interested in when you, the first guy you interviewed, Johnny, Johnny Rubber. Robert um, Johnny, sorry. Um, yes, he was talking yes. about, you know, Holloway Road was a bit grim in those days. Well, I, yeah, I can tell you it was because I was there as well. There used to be a chain of record shops called R Price. R Price stopped in the early 90s, I guess. There was actually one in Dawson Shopping Centre, which has always been a bit of a dive, really. But there was one on Holloway Road. I remember um, going at about 11 years old, going into the shop breathlessly and buying this album on tape. Tapes were my youth. I mean, I, I didn't buy vinyl until... I, I was about 22 or something. I think they were usually important in terms of the evolution of modern electronic music. They were sampled by the Prodigy in Leftfield in the 90s, which was a decade where I used to go to these amazing techno squat parties in Hackney where the whole squat would be bathed in these amazing luminescent psychedelic colours and there'd be trance techno on the sound system. For mm. me, that was the really exciting scene in the mid-90s. Mm. So um, it was a, a progression from the Roman orgies. It, that's means. right, yeah. Yes, we yes. just had these orgies in these big squats and all these like weird luminescent paint on the walls. At the back of King's Cross, for example, before it was done up like it was now, it used to be this Bagley's and where all the massive rave kind of area. In general, the London squat techno scene in the 90s was what was really exciting for me at that time. And going back to Art of Noise, I think they were, they were also kind of very daringly avant-garde too. And I think this is something like you just don't think about when you're only 10 or 11, how daringly avant-garde music mm -hmm. is. But they, in retrospect, they are. I mean, their music's very odd. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of strange music motifs on there. There's like found sounds, there's kind of music concrete, samples of people just engaged in mundane talking, speeches by political leaders, snippets of modern composition. I mean, they had Anne Dudley in the band, who was a professional composer who did really beautiful classical music. It's just this weird synthesis of different music.
also they had Paul Morley, the journalist. That's right. Them, and yeah. It apparently was, they got the name Art of Noise from, from the Italian futurist. futurist. Yeah, that's, Luigi uh, Russolo. Right. That's right. And they were on Z, ZZT, which was a big label. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Frankie Goes to Hollywood were on ZZT. Yes, I think Trevor Horn, one of the, the producers who was in the band, also was connected. That's right. So bands. on the one hand, you had Frankie Goes Hollywood, but then you had the Art of Noise, who were there's a lot of very strange stuff, which, I mean, I don't know how easy it would have been to market that stuff in the mid-80s. I suppose having a journalist in the band helped too. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I mean, Paul Morley was a journalist right from the enemy, wasn't he? Yes. And then Anne Dudley was the composer. Mm-hmm. There was someone called J.J. Yaxali. I think he was a programmer. So he was I think a pro- he was that's right, he was a programmer. Involved with the electronics. And in those days, I mean, it must have been a lot harder than now to do that kind of music. They had a machine uh, called the Fairlight CMI Sampler, <laughs> which was like a very early sampler that allowed them to map out all of those little voice sounds they have the on voice this sounds track they have on the track. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, because it's an early use of that technology, it does sound a bit different to the kind of sampling that you get today. Yeah, that's and right. It kind of adds yeah. something to it by yeah. having that rough finishing on the electronics that they were using. That's right, it's a sound rough now. I mean, there's, there's always an argument that now it's just too easy to do music, getting these huge synth racks on tour. I mean, God knows how they did it. I mean, I don't even think Art of Noise played live very much because I think it must have just been so hard in terms of realising the, the technically on stage what they were doing. They were very much a studio band. <laughs> You've chosen Andy Warhol's favourite song. All Tomorrow's Parties by the Velvet Underground, of course. For me, this is where alternative music, or underground music as we know it, starts. I mean, the Velvet Underground were the first genuinely alternative cult band in a way that they have incorporated the avant-garde into rock and roll and in the mainstreams. I mean, obviously, you could argue that the Beatles did that as well. White Album, you know that track, Number Nine? Number Nine? Revolution Revolution Number Nine, nine. sorry, yeah, that's right, yeah. But they they weren't a cult band in the way that the Velvets were. And they weren't as daringly uncompromising as well. I think you would never have had Sonic Youth and hundreds of other art rock bands. But it's such an incredibly evocative record. I mean, every time I hear it, I kind of think of these amazing debauched New York warehouse parties where, you know, everyone looks incredible, everyone's having sex with everyone else. Bisexuality and androgyny is rampant. as you could say. Probably some pretty crazy stuff involving leather and whips going on. I'd like to think I've been to some pretty crazy swahes in my time, but I imagine that the ones they were soundtracking in the song must have been pretty wild. I just wish mm-hmm. I was there. Yeah, everyone from Truman Capote swimming by <laughs> to... Um, <laughs> yeah. I love... Nico's semi-bored vocals on the record. She still managed to keep some of the European chanters about her. It could be the soundtrack to like the European aristocracy in some massive chateau somewhere, having some amazing balls, meeting of, of the royal families of all the European countries in Austria, in the mountains or something, or in the centre of Vienna, or of like thousands of servants. Very grand sounding, considering how primitive the production was.
European edge to it. I mean, there's even a song that near the end called European Sun, essentially an American band, but they had two Europeans in the band, of course, which is John Cale and Nico. So this kind of European element to their sound is really only something that you get in the first Velvet Un mm -hmm. Underground and Nico album. But then she then took that sound and used it on Desert Shore and the Marble Index in such a brilliant way. Yeah. And with John Cale producing, don't forget. I mean, I think they were pretty much a couple and they were living together in some squat at this point. It was such a visionary of a brilliant sound. I sometimes think Nico, Nico didn't really get her dues in the mm -hmm. way that the way that she has. Because most of the songs were written by Lou Reed. Lou Reed did have a songwriting background before yeah. he joined the Velvet Underground. And John yeah, Cale did right. as well, didn't he? John Cale kind of burst himself in the avant-garde. They have this sort of image as being very almost naive, proto-punk, whereas in fact they actually had some trained musicians yeah that's right they weren't pro mm. they weren't kind of like uh, primitive musicians where the Stooges were for example they were actually trained I mean Mo Tucker wasn't really I mean Nico was a model before then I think she'd been in a Fellini film wasn't didn't she so oh yes well, she was in La Dolce Vita but uh, also yeah. she was in this little French film called uh, Striptease no I haven't seen that one. and this is not very easy <laughs> to get hold of but um she worked with Serge Gainsbourg. Oh, wow. There's a scene with both of them in the film. And she actually recorded songs with Serge Gainsbourg. To say about someone who died, but the fact that she died in a beef in '88, while everyone else is in the second summer of love, taking ecstasy around her, having fun, and she dies, very Nico, you know. <laughs> yeah. I used to volunteer for a music festival, and went a huge amount as a punter before then too. And that festival was called All Tomorrow's Parties, named after this very mm. song. I think ATP was kind of the first festival with kind where it was a sort of boutique festival in which one act would create it. And they would then choose all the other bands on the bill, which I thought was a brilliant idea. And, and when ATP started in about 98 or something, like nine, uh, no one had thought of that before. The idea of this experimental festival at Butlins and Pontins is, is genius. In practice, my experience at ATP was that you could go from stage to stage watching different kind of genres and music, but they're all part of this cohesive whole because they were all created by the main act, you know. And it, you, I just got into so much music that I didn't know about from going to a lot of ATPs. So Godspeed You Black Hammer chose one, Portishead chose one, Sonic Youth, quite diverse bills where you'd have different genres, but somehow it would just all work. I mean, so many amazing ATPs at Butlins where by the end of the night you would be part of a procession at 2 a.m. around the chalets, people banging pots and pans with a white sheet over your head with little 
holes for your eyes to see. Um, or you'd be hanging out with one of the musicians in um, someone's chalet till 2 or 3 a.m. Uh, I remember the Animal Collective ATP, the t Terry Riley was in the chalet next to me because he was performing. Oh, I see. So you got wow. chatting to him because he just happened uh -huh. to be in the chalet right next to my one. Great. I don't think there was much of a backstage ATP. It was a chalet people. culture. Yeah, or they yeah. Would, you'd just hang out with all the musicians in the Butlin's Bar or the Pontins Bar. It was really sad they ended on such a bad note, you know, with the bankruptcy or whatever it was. They ended up just mm -hmm. owing everyone tons of money. I do remember that the last ATP, which I think was created by Stuart Lee, they got John Cale to play. So the guy who actually wrote all tomorrow's parties, and he refused to play because they wouldn't pay him, or they couldn't pay him, or they didn't have the money. To me, that was almost like a cartoon ending. There was no tomorrow's party. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But you have things like, there's that festival called Le Guess Who in the Netherlands, which looks like it takes on the baton of ATP is the same idea. For tomorrow's party. So um, you're incarcerated in the subterranean bunker. <laughs> but you could still have parties in the bunker. <laughs> I mean, what, what would you, um, if you... If you had to bring a few objects and luxuries with you, what, what would, you, That's a good how question. would you... How would you approach the whole scenario? In the toilet, there's a book called The Penguin History of the World. Uh, you, when you go in, um, you'll see it. I think I'd take that. I mean, it's a pretty epic read. You know, a cast of millions. Because that would really mm -hmm. sort me out for reading. Maybe an acoustic guitar, just to reconnect with music. So, um, obviously, sorry, a laptop if I could. But, laptop. Then, but then, would you get the Wi-Fi connection? I mean, you've got wife you've got rationing, <laughs> hence the uh, <laughs> the limits to the, your, uh, yeah. your choices. Yeah. Oh, okay, that um, would a, would a tablet be allowed? Then? <laughs> you've got the same problem there, really. I'm afraid. I think you'll just stick with the um, the book instead of the Bible <laughs> and the complete works of Shakespeare. You get a uh, history of the world. Well, yeah. it's, it's a similar it, National it, Geographic it, picture <laughs> picture album. Do you, do you have a read when you go in the toilet? Okay, I mean, <laughs> if, if you provide food um, occasionally, I might uh, <laughs> take up that challenge. I think, I think I'll stick with those two things, an acoustic guitar and the penguin history of the world. Absolutely, and you <laughs> could combine the two and write a world history epic. And probably Homer, like the Odyssey it sort would be put to music. They'd use an instrument which is not dissimilar to the guitar as well. I'm not a musicologist, so I, uh, this is getting into quite a... Mm. Well, you're nearly a musicologist. I'm nearly a musicologist. Yeah. Um, I did do a performance once of a treatise by Cornelius Cardieu at the University of Greenwich, along with about 30 of musicians, and we were using this special weird notation that only he had came up with, which kind of suggested to you whether to get louder at this point or quieter. You know, we think of notation, we always think of the Western notation, you know, the, the stave. But actually, there has been a lot of different music notation. China, Japan and Korea had their own music notation, which is completely different. Southeast Asia, India too, especially. The classical music notation that we know is only something that's relatively recent, from maybe the 17th century. Just as with languages have different uh, notation for how to pronounce a, a word or a letter, it's the same with music. It kind of encourages a more linear way of looking at music, whereas yeah, so music with a Hindu background yeah. or philosophy around music has this diamond at the centre yeah. of all things and how you have refractions from this diamond of light which make up the universe and how a lot of kind of ragas and early yeah. Eastern music tries to replicate this, diamond. Yeah, the idea of wow. the diamond. And I how didn't know that. It's it's like a, a mobile. It's more of a continual experience of mm -hmm. kind of drifting, 
drone rather than telling you a story. Musical notation goes back to a long, long time before BC, and they were using a completely different notation system. And it was a completely different attitude to how a song progressed to how we think of it now. And I only knew that because I played in this performance of Treaties by Cornelius Cardew. That was a really interesting gig. I mean, it was about three hours long. And there was whole sections where there'd be dancers dancing around you and singing a song. But that was all part of the movement as well. Beyond music, that was a very interesting performance. Following the endless parties, we're going to have a bit of a come down now. I remember in the very early 90s, before email made communication very easy, my brother used to have a pen pal in Germany. Pen pals are something that you actually had in those days. This guy called Axel in Germany. Yeah, we actually got to stay with him and his parents in his place in Munich in this really nice house. He made my brother a compilation tape of underground music, which somehow ended up being passed to me. And right. I ended up listening to it, and there was napalm death on it, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But I remember being floored by one of the songs on it, which was by Codeine, uh, and the track's called Cave-In, and it's from an album called Frigid Stars, which came out in 1990, when I was about 13 or 14. And it was so unusual to anything else that I'd heard, this song. I was transfixed by it. And I guess it was through listening to that song that I used to end up going to Rough Trade in Covent Garden, which has now closed to make way for the one off Brick Lane, which I think most people would know about, or even bunk off from school and go quite a bit. The branch they had in Covent Garden was much smaller and much more kind of hardcore. Like to get there, you'd have to go through these winding stairs that were in Slam City Skates, down into this basement venue where it was bathed in this green light. They'd always be playing some unlistenable hardcore thing on the speakers. This song was a portal into American sort of underground guitar music. I was genuinely the only person in my school who had discovered this stuff and was listening to it. Codeine or Slint or Sonic Youth or Sebado or Dinosaur Junior and, and Nirvana as well I guess who were kind of more well known. You didn't have Spotify in those days, you didn't have YouTube, so you basically had to buy the Melody Maker and then you'd have to go to Rough Trade in Covent Garden or HMV on Oxford Street. The other thing was of course to listen to John Peel on Radio 1 and in a way that made it more exciting. I mean it's so easy now to discover music. It's like that quote by um, David Byrne where he says that music will be eventually become like running water. It's kind of true, you know, you put on a computer and you put on Spotify and you have a whole record shop on there. But in those days, it was a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. You had to go to the well. You had to go to the well, yeah. Last night I dreamt your face The skin was falling
Oh yeah. Everyone else was just listening to Lenny Kravitz or just just crap. You know. Oh, wow. I mean, Lenny Kravitz quite advanced in my school, really. No. When I was young, there was this band I quite like called Test Icicles, and I had <laughs> I had a little pin badge, and uh, my maths teacher thought it said Testicles. Well, I mean, that's I had, why uh, the name is called Test Icicles. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, and I had <laughs> endless fun with that little badge. <laughs> I still find the American underground guitar music can be really exciting. And through all that movement, you had sort of eventually had post rock with Tortoise. Um, you had the next act we're going to play by Godspeed You Black Emperor from Montreal in Canada called Storm. It does feel like a storm. Just as the track before was released at the start of the 90s, this one was released at the start of the noughties. And I think this record really soundtracked that decade, which I think most people agree was characterized by 9-11 taking place a year exactly after this record was released. Uh, and obviously leading on from that was the Iraq war and the invasion of Afghanistan. This album really captures the beginnings of surveillance culture as we know it now. And it also really captures the anti-capitalist protest culture that you had with things like Occupy uh, and a lot of the, the sort of books that Naomi Klein wrote, um, like with no logo or whatever, and the Shock Doctrine. Uh, there's a bit near the end of this song where you can hear distorted samples of what sounds like police talking through megaphones while there's this ominous drone and a piano over the top. And it, it, to me, it's incredibly evocative. I mean, whenever I hear it, I always imagine some grainy footage of a riot with someone throwing rocks at the police. It's a perfect soundtrack. It's also one of the first releases on a Canadian record label called Constellation Records, which, which I love. I was actually lucky enough to meet one of the guys from Constellation Records when I went to Montreal. Uh, my dad lectures there, and I have been along with him. And I checked out the scene in Mile End in Montreal, not the Mile End in London, mm -hmm. where a lot of the Constellation bands are based. It's a lot of genuinely challenging and talented musicians coming together rather than sort of in competition with each other, which you sometimes have in London and New York. If a genuinely independent record label that's kind of documented a local scene. You had a ton of factory space because of these French language laws that they introduced in Quebec, which meant that a lot of the businesses went off to Toronto, which is English speaking. And that's partly what made you have these amazing bands like Godspeed, but there was just a ton of empty warehouse space available. Godspeed kind of still remain really important to me because of their anti-capitalist, anti-corporate message, which is very much conveyed in their music and their packaging of their records and their politics. They famously spoke out against big record labels. Um, on the back of Godspeed's album, Yankee UXO, there's a chart hmm. linking Sony records with um, oh, arms manufacturers. And that's something I really admire. And Ethan Menach, sort of the main protagonist of Godspeed as that's, well. That's I mean, right. he was also sort of homeless for quite a long time when he was younger. They also managed to embed their political message within these grand musical compositions as that's well. That's right. I mean, it's, it's interesting that they're instrumental, but at the same time, they they have such a strong mm. political anti-corporate message in, yes, in what they that. do. 
You know, they mm-hmm. managed to convey that more than some other bands might do who have lyrics. A kind of hopeful piece of music as well. I mean, the intro is just amazing. I've seen people at concerts, Spellbound. Quite joyous and uplifting. That's right. I was so yeah, when they play live, they have hope. A massive a hammer mm. with the words hope. Thirteen minutes, you suddenly have this more sort of discordant tension building up. That's right. In the last section, you hear an announcement in a supermarket. That's right, in English and in Spanish. Mm. uh, It's asking people not to give money to unsolicited people or something like that. Yeah, people selling things around. That's right, Welco Barco AM, PM or something like that. Lots of internet chat about what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of internet chatter about God, Godspeed generally and what the, the samples on their records mean. Welcome to Arco AM, AM Mini Market. We would like to And the way they thread those field recordings and those samples among this kind of orchestral music is that it's almost like a pointer to a new way of doing rock music in some way. That's abandoned lyrics and rock posturing and it is all about instead following the narrative of the, the samples with the music wrapping itself around the field recordings mm. and the samples. The first time I saw them was in about 2001 at the Scala uh, in King's Cross, so a long time ago, and they had some really incredible visuals on uh, the screen behind them as they were playing, and it was a three-hour set. Pretty heavy, punishing stuff. Only livened by someone in the audience shouting, Stonehenge, at one point. I see. (laughs) There's always one. Which I think the band even found funny. We definitely have a pagan thread (laughs) building. We do, yeah. Mm. I always think of Godspeed as being a kind of neoclassical, even though they use guitars. Yes. Because there's no lyrics, mm. I think that's, that's partly why. It reminds me a bit of the Messiaen, so the actual storm yeah. section. Yeah, I mean, the guitars like in that. it, what is a guitar? It's a stringed instrument, just as a violin mm-hmm. is. Another guy that I forgot to mention here is Glenn Branca, part of the New York downtown scene in the 70s and 80s, and he would get mass orchestras of guitars. First and more would be part of them. Sonic Youth Lee Ronaldo would be part of them. Orchestras made up of... 15 guitarists and then there'd be a bassist and a drummer and there'll be this amazing wash of guitars like the yeah, London Symphony Orchestra but if you imagine that just with guitars and with percussion oh, okay if you have a spatial element to it that's more right so than... yeah and it's almost like he'll, he'll do a sort of classical piece but it's just using electric guitars you get lots of overtones and mm-hmm. lots of harmonies make each guitar play at a different octave same with an orchestra different instruments are playing at different ranges and octaves obviously. Uh, mm. and you'd get these amazing harmonic contrasts when you have all these guitars playing together mm. 
Ben Brecker actually did a gig uh, about 10 years ago at the Roundhouse with 100 guitarists and he invited members of the public to play in the orchestra and I wanted to play but unfortunately I was moving house the next day. There was just no way I could do it which was very annoying. So the next one is related because this band called Land of Kush who are also from Montreal they're also in Constellation Records. Godspeed have got about seven musicians whereas Land of Kush have got about 30. Hmm. Uh, they're kind of a more of an amorphous collective but I think they've shared musicians. It's called Iceland Spa but 2010. To me it marks the start of the 10s just as much as the previous two records marked the start of their respective decades. I chose this record because I had an epiphany listening to my job at the time in publishing where you could listen to music while you're working. It kick-started me listening to, I would say, non-traditional music. By that I mean not indie rock music, where it's four guys mm. just playing guitars. Through this I got through a lot of world music and a lot of jazz music, for example. It's like Pharaoh Sanders and Alice Coltrane and Sun Ra. There's a Middle Eastern theme on this record, which you yes. get a lot with Land of Kush. And there's definitely an Ood in there somewhere. Sam Shalabi is the yeah, main, main musician. He's the main musician by Alan um, yeah. parents are from Egypt. He's, so. a G he's Egyptian Canadian, mm. so he splits so his time he... between Montreal and Cairo. Kush is a ancient That's right, uh, that's right. Um, civilization it's, in the, uh, it's in the biography of the, the world that I've been reading. He just studies ancient musical forms and ancient Egyptian music. That's right, yeah. He does, yeah. You can sort of hear within this track that like, rhythmically and the scales they're using, they're definitely There's definitely a Middle Eastern element there. I mean, the, from, uh, yeah, the scale, I mean, I, I, can't, I don't know what the work is. It's also very jazz influenced as well, with amazing instrumentation going on. I mean, there's a bit in the middle of the song where there's kind of the horn section seem to be trying to outdo each other. It's how you can have the most craziest sound. Sort of shows that another way of doing things which to me to be with four white guys playing guitar music they have to do it in a really interesting way i mean sonic youth managed it because they they used all non-alternate tunings this song to me shows that there's a whole other world out there of really interesting music this and even the guitar solo at the end is absolutely brilliant as well
your next choice is really a solo um, man against the world. Um, <laughs> a very a dark, tortured soul. So this next track is by mm. a British guy who goes by a number of alter egos. I think his real name is Leyland Kirby. One of the alter egos he goes by is The Caretaker, which is probably his most well-known. Mm. Caretaker is kind of part of the whole British hauntology movement. You'll have some, like, some 20s record like that people ballroom dance do, but he's put these grainy electronics over the top. Mm-hmm. The record I chose is, is one of his pseudonyms called V slash VM. Under V slash VM, he radically remixes well-known songs where he's made them sound like they're Satanists or something. Mm. Uh, and on this one, he's tackled The Lady in Red by Krista Berg. I mean, you say tackle, I think he ravages. <laughs> he ravages is probably a better word. Yes. Uh, he's done some kind of weird pitch shifting on this remix. Mm. I don't know what he's done. It's almost like he's unshifted the pitch <laughs> unshifted, yeah. into, into one demonic... The comments on YouTube about how sinister Chris Berg sounds. It's a bit like a serial killer leaving an answering machine message on in a horror film or in a Michael Haneke film or something. It's very imaginative reworking. It is very imaginative, yeah. It's one of the most well-known songs yeah. in the whole world. And then yeah. he's completely transform the he whole has, yeah. character of it into... And I'm, I'm always fascinated by the uh, reaction to this. I mean, I remember when you sent this, mm. you were saying how interesting it was, but then I, I sent it to a friend of mine, and she was horrified. She's like, I can't listen to this, it's horrible. It's literally giving you nightmares. Inspires a derision and horror among people. For everyone listening, I recommend you go on YouTube and uh, type in V slash VM and listen to some of his remakes. He, he's did a horrendous one of Take My Breath Away, where he's put some kind of modular rack thing on the record. I was howling of laughter listening to that. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> True by Strano Valley is worth listening to as well, because there's a sax solo in the middle, which just sounds utterly demonic.
quite incredible. You're just like, what the hell is this? I mean, this is traumatic to listen to. So uh, I would love to know what Christa Berg himself actually thinks of it. I'm presuming Christa Berg has not given his blessings. <laughs> is Christa Berg still alive? Not anymore. Not <laughs> after hearing. Perhaps the two things uh, <laughs> answer each other. I don't <laughs> I would love to know, has Christa Berg actually heard this version and has he also heard the One Optrix Point Never version as well, who's kind of mm. relatively well known, where he's just looped the bit um, where Christa Berg says, there's nobody here. And he's kind of looped mm. it, so that bit just goes over and over again. I think he's put some kind of reverb on it or something to make it more spacious sounding. Simon Reynolds, you know, the music journalist, kind of talked a lot about this in one of his books. I think, was it Energy Flash? But he talks about these two remixes, how they've kind of brought an, a sort of cheesy 80s ballad, you know, into mm -hmm. the dragon kicking into the 21st century. Mm. Goth vaporwave. Yeah, goth vaporwave, yeah. It feels like that kind of whole hypnagogic pop thing that they've got in the US, you know, like James Ferraro and the skaters. And people listening in, just, just look up hypnagogic pop and also look up British hauntology as well while you're at it. Anyway, the, the comments for, for that one on YouTube are, are kind of a bit like a porn film. You know, I never want this to stop. I kind of love the idea of the prankster in modern music. One of the great pranksters in modern music has to be the Aphex Twin. I love that story of the Aphex Twin playing a gig somewhere in the mid-90s where he just went on stage somewhere and let a sandpaper machine play and then just walked off for the rest of the gig. And the audience just had to list the sound of this, like, excruciatingly loud sound of this sandpaper machine going around. <laughs> uh, apparently, Ophix Twin has actually DJed this remix of The Lady in Red Live and got um, a massive cheer. Don't you, you can't really dance to it, though, can you? You can rock, disturbingly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the magnum opus at the top of That's your right. uh, playlist so is... This is uh, In Sea by Terry Riley. I've gigged around a lot in London in my time, but one of my favourite ever performances was when I was part of an orchestral performance in C at the Lexington venue in North London. I was playing keyboards and clarinet. It's just a fantastic piece of music that allows you to improvise even as it uses conventional musical notation. Really clever in some ways. So in doing so, I think it's cressage a lot of modern mm -hmm. improv music and a lot of modern composition. In the same way that the Velvet Underground kind of where underground music really started. In a way, in C was where experimental and improv music started. It's like a mathematical equation that you can multiply and subtract when you play it, which is why it's so brilliant to play live, with all the different layers. They come together and merge and then they diverge. There's a fixed start point and a fixed end point, but in the middle you can go off and improvise on your own within a framework. And it's so simple on the one hand because it uses C major, which is the easiest of all keys. There's no black notes. But at the same time it can get really complicated as well. It's a genius piece of music like that.
quite a simple instruction, but then it Doesn't ends up expanding. It allows more you to expand more. and to improvise on your own within a framework mm. where everyone then comes back together and then yeah. and the song ends. So you're in a very much a collective and you're all bound by the, the same key. And yet you're also invited to express yourself and yeah. be an individual yeah. within it. And then... Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I remember it was the same day as the World Cup final between Spain and the Netherlands. So I was in the performance right. in C, and then I had to go straight afterwards like, and watch Spain versus Holland. It was a strange day. It's like very high culture and then very you... low culture. Don't speak to no, I, I mean, I like, Terry Riley I like, like that. I, <laughs> Did you it, see any connections between no, the two? No, not really. No. But we, we got a good audience because it was before the game. More generally as well, I wanted to include one of the modern American minimalist composers. Um, I, I love the hypnotic rhythmic pulses that a lot of these artists have in their music which I think has been really influential. Very much seeped into popular consciousness. Like, if, To me, they're almost, almost like soundtracks to the new world. I always imagine like, a very busy New York. Swarms of people wandering That's around. That's right, yeah. And of course, they were very much in the late 70s, the New York Lottie. Philip Glass was hanging out with Basquiat. Minimus composers coming together with rappers. These guys weren't just stuck in their apartments doing music notation all day. They got out. I suppose that one way that Terry Riley differs from the others is that he's seen as being an organ player. You have at the centre of NC the experience of the musicians yeah. is considered as well. Considered more, more than, than, than the, the, the sort other Yeah, the other composers who designed more for massive orchestras. He was very much into modular synths and the organ. I mean, that was very much his speciality in the pulsing kind of sound. If you look mm. at the Velvet Underground, he was hanging out with them. And NC came up before the Velvet Underground. It'd be interesting to know if, if NC really inspired them. It influenced the Who even. The song Barber O'Reilly. Oh, of know, course. The Barber part is named after Barber Yogi, who was like a Middle Eastern Zoroastrian uh, kind of guru or something. Okay. But then the O'Reilly part is named after Terry Riley. You know, Teenage Wasteland. And you can hear it in the, the keyboard at the start. It's a homage to Terry Riley. You hear that in a lot of music, even without realising it. To me, this is the real classical music of the 20th century. They're not European dudes from the 18th century or whatever. These people are still alive and still doing music. The classical music is still moving on to the 21st century, and it's been changed in different ways now. Composers like uh, Johan Johansson, for example, who's just died, unfortunately. And then you have Godspeed You Black M, for example, where they'll merge orchestral-sounding music, reading it as with samples or field recordings. Mm -hmm. Classical music has changed and mutated a lot over the last 30 years. All these amazing scenes mm. like that, it must have been such fun. You know, maybe something's happening, but we just can't see it. Yeah, I just wish I'd been there. You have to make your own scene, I guess. Mm. That's what I do with my music. Under the name Dream Map. That's right, I, I like the idea of being mysterious. 
yeah, I'm definitely very proud of that album because I did pretty much everything myself and there's a lot on there. I just put so much effort into it. Which piece are you most proud of? The last track, the piano track with the cello. That's the closest I've become to sort of conventional classical music. I'm really proud of that. I remember going to the barbecue music library a lot and sitting at those pianos that you have in there. And I remember just writing the notation for that loads of times. It's called 100 Bars in C Minor, but then mm. it's also called UBV 76 because UBV 76 is the name of a Russian buzzer sound that comes from a forest in Russia near the border of Estonia. And no one knows what this buzzer sound is for. If you go on UVB slash 76.net or something like that, there's lots of speculation as to what this mysterious buzzer sound is. A lot of people thinking it's at the Russian military. Sometimes you can hear a guy reciting in Russian Russians names like Nikolai. What's really creepy is you can hear sometimes the sound of people talking at the background while this buzzer just goes on and on and on. And then someone's screaming in one audio clip. And you can hear that mysterious buzzer sound right at the end of the record.
on, on the wire and, and the other day they, they interviewed a dance act electronic act called ubv 76 they've obviously did the same thing as me they've obviously got really interested in it and uh, there was a wired article when a russian guy tried to track down where it was like he went to this forest and when he couldn't find the building uh, and if you turn off the lights and listen to it late night on, on, on YouTube, with all the lights off, it's actually really scary in some weird way. I, I will do that. <laughs> I, I imagine it's just there as a provocation, just to get to the web, to get people in talking. Yeah, yeah I, it's, it's probably thought, one of those. It's thought they have some military purpose, but the Russian government refuses to confirm what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's it fake is. music. It's That's what it it's is. It's fake music, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's an extractor fan from an apocalypse bunker. But maybe. It's something some, well, like this. Yeah, it's, it's, maybe it's some mm. kind of apocalypse bunker. And Chernobyl as well. That's so this right, is, I did uh, go to Chernobyl. Somewhere that you... Um, these shoes have been to Chernobyl. Oh, have they um, now? It was a really interesting experience. I sort of feel ambivalent about it because I did feel when I was out there, is this right, what I'm doing? I mean, it was such a horrible tragedy to happen. Uh, there was a kiosk selling merchandise, glow-in-the-dark fridge magnets and stuff. It's a bit like when you go to the killing fields in Cambodia. Should those places just be left alone as like a memorial to those who died? Abandoned building after abandoned building. And you hear accounts of people who died where the radiation was so bad that they couldn't even take painkillers because the veins had just collapsed in their bodies, so the painkillers didn't even work. I remember when we got back to Kiev and the sun is shining and water fountains and children dancing, and I was just, I was just like, oh my god, I'm back in civilization because it was in Chernobyl feels like the end of the world. I mean the Chernobyl hotel was really quite incredible. You get served by these unsmiling babushkas who make you turnip soup. I mean I remember we got back to Kiev to our Airbnb and um, the other two I was with they went to the pub and they said do you want to come and I was just I couldn't come I just had to have a lie down. Stunned by mm -hmm. the last two days you know. Mm. The one room I really remember was the propaganda room where they would teach young Soviet children about the evils of the West. Some fascinating stuff on the wall. Whether well, it be a cartoon of a nuclear bomb, they were teaching the kids that, that the West were going to throw on them any minute now. You go into all these abandoned tower blocks in Pripyat, just rooms and rooms of typewriters with dust on them, baby dolls, and there's just all kinds of idiots going on Instagram and putting up photos of them gurning with the backdrop of Chernobyl. It's ridiculous. I mean, the, the photography I took out there was always of the devastation in buildings, mm -hmm. abandoned warehouses. It was never of me gurning at the camera. I should hope so. So, um, uh, with, with the apocalypse bunker, you've, you've successfully dodged a <laughs> Chernobyl-like fate. Thank you. It would seem in our. I'm, I'm still here. I haven't irradiated. If you had to pick one film to see you through, the the endless. Oh, I know which one. Dave, stop, Dave. I'm afraid. My mind is going. My mind was going, Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to, I'm half crazy for the love of you. Thank you. That was a beautiful rendition. It is, of course, Two Hours to One A Space Odyssey. This is a very clever film. I mean, how it was called how because not only does it stand for heuristic, algorithmic, logical, something or other, it mm. was also one letter up each from IBM. I'm, I'm always struck by, you know, the monolith 
how it just resembled the IBM building as well. I had thought black that. Me yeah, standard that, row there's, design. There's, there's a lot of interesting interpretation of the film. I mean, the fact that the where he kills Hal, so to speak, the room is red. And it never occurred to me when I watched it that the red signifies the death of Hal. Of course, Hal doesn't have blood. When you die, often it's kind of horrible and bloody. The 2001 book series. Yeah. Bowman, when he becomes a star child, he realises that the measurements of the monoliths 149 can actually go on forever. They can actually go on far beyond 149. If you read the books and then watch 2001, it makes a lot more sense. There was an actual film sequel to 2001, 2010, oh, which came out okay. in the mid-80s with Roy Schneider. It's actually really good. And it goes a lot into what happened in 2001. It has the sample of David Bowman saying, my God, it's full of stars which he never actually says in 2001 in the film, but he does say it in the book. And then the monolith mm. opens and takes him into that other dimension. 2001 just is the only film that genuinely sums up humanity as a whole in the way that other films have never done. 2001, as read by Arthur C. Clarke, from 1976 Vinyl Record. Strange and beautiful and terrible empires rose and fell and passed on their knowledge to their successors. Earth is not forgotten but another visit would serve little purpose. It was one of a million silent worlds, few of which would ever speak. And now, out among the stars, evolution was driving towards new goals. The first explorers of Earth had long since come to the limits of flesh and blood. As soon as their machines were better than their bodies, it was time to move. First their brains, and then their thoughts alone, they transferred into shining new homes of metal and of plastic. In these, they roamed among the stars. They no longer built spaceships. They were spaceships. The room you have at the, the room end, at the end, that's right. Yeah. I think that in itself is almost like a bunker. That's you know, right. It's this that's right. It's this, it's this room, room. fake room that the aliens have conjured for him to sit in so that when he falls asleep, they can probe his body and turn him into the space baby. So the last shot is of him as a giant space baby watching the Earth. Because you start with the apes and you end with the embryo. That's right. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of things that people have pointed out about the film. I mean, in each section, you see the sun go over the monolith, whether it's on Earth with the apes at the start, whether it's on the moon when they finally get to advanced stage of humanity where they can discover mm -hmm. the monolith under the yeah. surface of the moon, which is why it emits that high-pitched sound. It's alerting the aliens that the humans have got to that stage of civilization. And, of course, in the third part, you see the sun over the monolith as it's traveling in space around Jupiter. And it's just the, it's the only film that's really talked about how we are here, how human consciousness has happened. I mean, it's a genius idea. It's the postulation that humanity is the way it is because of an alien force. And people have asked Arthur C. Clarke, well, are the aliens meant to represent God? And he says, well, it's up to you to decide. It's such a brilliant idea that it was the aliens with the monoliths that made us become who we mm. are today. If that monolith hadn't been there in that first scene, that we would still just be apes jumping up and down excitedly a lot. An interesting crutch to have in this isolated environment, confronting yourself with the existential reality of why of we your, are here. Yeah. What, we still don't really know why we're here, do we? to suggest one book the penguin history of the world so we've already yeah yeah we've, we've um, that's the one book i would say the people's history yeah of the you'd world. have it's, that in the it's toilet it's a cast of thousands like 1300 
pages, so it's a pretty uh-huh. bulky You've got read. one character a page. In ancient Rome at the moment. And then presumably your bunker, you'd have a lava lamp. And, yes, I uh, would. Absolutely. We've got a great poster here that says, I want I, to believe, yeah. with a flying saucer over the flying, flying UFO. Maybe that's the flying saucer that produces the UVB 76 uh, buzzer sound. It looks like it could be in Russia. <laughs> that. And you've got, um, it's very foresty looking. Supportive, queer, educational, cooperative, youthful, yeah. radical centre So I want to talk a bit about this, but this was a project I was involved with. My dad, he was involved with a community centre in the 70s and 80s in Hackney called Centreprise now defunct it's where it is now is where there's something called hackney pirates opposite the rio cinema centerprise were kind of a community center they they had a youth arts project they had a bookshop and a cafe they had a youth arts space but you've got to remember in the 1780s it was very different hardly any bookshops in hackney solidly working class area so this is not like it was now where you have stonian bookshop you've got pages of hackney and burley fisher books it was very different then so it was very unique and it was inspired by an american guy who moved to london called glenn thompson who took as his inspiration a lot of what you had in the inner cities in America where there'd be a, a cafe where you could read books and buy coffee and there'd be a youth art space there. There's a publishing project where, where this gentleman, Ken Warpole, used to publish books by local people and by school children. And then there was also a housing advice and rights stuff, which my, my dad was involved with. I was involved with a project a couple of years ago, mapping the history of Enterprise, and we built a website, a book and an app and if you go on a hackneyautobiography.org.uk, you'll see the fruits of our labour. I, I was digitalising all the Centerprise books. I mean, there's about 30 of them. Some other volunteers were interviewing all the people involved in Centerprise, including my father. And it was initiated by a not-for-profit organisation called On The Record, who uh, deal with the oral history of London, this radical part of history that people mm. often don't know about. Their spare rooms would be used by feminist collectors. There was the Hackney Flashers, which was a women-only photography group. All the people who had moved from Chile during Pinochet's time, and obviously Pinochet was absolutely brutal. Radical newspapers like the Hackney Hackney People's Press. So it's a fantastic project to be in. And we produced a book, Lime Green Project. But if you just go on to hackneyautobiography.org.uk, have a listen. There's an app that we produced where you can go on buses. If you enable your GPS, it will automatically right. come up with tours of what those areas are like, of where the buses go through. Accounts of people who worked in the factories back in the 1800s. Here's an interview with Beryl, who used to work in the warehouse making pins or whatever. And uh, we had a launch party at Sutton House, which is the oldest house in Hackney, where we went on some of the walks that are on the app. And uh, some of the people who were involved in Centerprise at the time were practically in tears. Apart from my album, the Centerprise project was another thing that I was really proud of, of being involved with. And that's what, why there's that poster saying Centerprise. Ridley started as a Jewish and Cockney market, then became a trading post for the entire world. When the market was young, traders fought each other for pitches along Kingsland High Street. Their cries echoed Queen Boudicca's warriors rampaging along here on their way to burn London. Around 1926, the council rounded up Barrow Boys into licensed stalls in Ridley Road. But the market and the rumours surrounding it could not be tamed. Bush meat and snake meat. Hellfire in your lovely French knickers. A performing rodent rang a bell with its paws. A calamity Jane in white riding breeches sold home-brewed medicine and hurled water over anyone who vexed her. Cowboy, have you heard of the cowboy? All right, the cowboy. 
The cowboy sold French bread stuffed with full English breakfast. All night long. Start wandering through the market. You're heading for a shop called Tasty Buds. It's painted lilac. Um, we even went beyond the 70s and 80s when we went right back to the 30s. And when we looked at things like the 43 group, who were a group of Jewish dissidents who would march against uh, Oswald Mosley when he was mm. conducting his fascist sermons at Ridley Road, you know, which is now incredibly multicultural in the market. But back then it was a real front line between black shirts, black shirts, they were called, and the sort of local Jewish activists, similar to the Battle of Cable Street. I mean, even in the 70s, South Hackney was a real battle line between the National Front and the Anti-Nazi League. I was kind of a bit more insulated from that up here in Stamford Hill, which never really changes. Hackney has a really radical history, especially in Stoke Newington. And um, yeah, Sons of Pride was a really pioneering. Yeah, and kind of reanimating the yeah, streets. And... Absolutely, uh, and reanimating the history of, of, mm. of, of East London. Mm. Okay, so the, your final <laughs> uh, single line, it was sort of like your epitaph, but you still, you might be discovered, this sort of message for the future, let's say. Strong and stable. Strong and stable Britain. Strong and stable Brexit. Over and over again while I play clarinet into people's faces. Everyone, please try and love each other because climate change will destroy us all one day. Wholesome and <laughs> pragmatic. <laughs> you can find more of Dominic's music by searching Dream Maps on Bandcamp or his writing by visiting goodnightlondon.blogspot.com. Thank you kindly for your attentive auditory voyeurism into this parallel world. I must take leave of you now to process Dominic's downloads over at Control, but I look forward to talking at you with another lockaway in the future. Under and out. <laughs> <laughs>